Hello, uh, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. As a courtesy to our speaker, sure that all devices are silent. For those of you who are new to IWP, we are a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degrees, including two online, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak out to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event, or visit iwp.edu. To support the work of IWP, IWP, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. Today, we will be hearing from Dr. Enrico Suarez, who will discuss the behavioral sciences in US national security. Dr. Suarez was in the IWP class of 2019, executive masters in national security affairs, and is director of psychiatry at St. Elizabeth's Hospital and director of forensic services at the Ross Center in Washington, DC. A diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and Psychiatry, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Forensic Psychiatry on faculty at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Georgetown University, and George Washington University. He has practiced psychiatry for over 15 years in public and private settings, including serving as Chief Child and Family Psychiatrist at the U.S. State Department. Currently, he is the Secretary of the Washington Psychiatric Society and the treasurer of the DC Mid-Atlantic Chapter of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. Dr. Suarez studied medicine and public health in Milan, Italy, and obtained uh, an MSc in public health and policy from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. His interest in political and operational psychology stems from a long-standing passion for international affairs and diplomacy. So please welcome Dr. Suarez. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua, for the kind introduction. Thank, thank you for inviting me. And it's great to be back here at IWP. I, I'm grateful for this. And the goal today is to present a historical overview of the involvement of the behavioral sciences in U.S. national security. I'd like to take a historical approach because I think of myself, I like to think of myself as a student of history. Such, I think of history as a session for all time in the, uh, life's teaching, as are classical. Uh, the Institute here does utilize the power of our classical heritage of the arts of statecraft. Um, statecraft requires a fine understanding of what happens for uh, a and the environment, identify linkages, find the uh, challenges and opportunities, then uh, make policy and uh, implement. I borrowed some of these words from an article that is published in the current issue of Foreign Affairs. The title is The Return of Statecraft, and the author is uh, Professor Cohen. The IWP founder, who just walked in, good evening, uh, has advocated for the integration of, uh, uh, for the integration of uh, of national power, including all the spectrum of diplomatic engagement. 
And this approach is the approach to statecraft is pragmatic and strategic. It balances interests and values. U.S. the constitutions, the constitution assigns to the, to the government the responsibility for the common defense and general welfare of the nation. National security depends on the response from nation states, but also from non-state actors in wartime as well as in peacetime. So it's in a on a continuum that requires coordinated efforts by the military and civilian branches of government at different levels of government, federal, state, and, 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 uh, and local, in partnership with a variety of other actors, including private sector. And the overall goal is to, to ensure the domestic tranquility of the nation. And uh, using the expression of St. Augustine in uh, the City of God, the tranquility of order. Tranquility of, of order uh, in a liberal democracy is rooted in the rule of law, uh, in uh, justice, in pluralism and tolerance, consent, rather than coercion. So all, all, uh, all these history, strategy, statecraft, national security, and that's really my point today, is the work and the, uh, and the product of people. Individuals, small and large groups, societies, nations. So therefore, the, the human factor matters here. In other words, how people think how they feel, how they identify themselves, how they interact with each other, what motivates them, what humiliates them, what makes them tick. And so there is a need for, and that's my point, for the disciplines that investigate scientific human behavior to have a seat at the table of national security and statecraft. And today I'm going to highlight in historically some of the contributions of some of these disciplines. Uh, psychology, which is the scientific study of the human mind and its function. Anthropologists, that studies human societies and cultures. And psychiatry, that is a branch of medicine uh, diagnosis and treats mental illness, but it's also broader than that, in my view. And, you know, just a, as, a, as a caveat, I'm not a psychologist or an anthropologist, I'm just a psychiatrist who has an interest in international affairs. So I'm going to start the historical journey with you, and I want to go back to very early on, to Revolutionary War time, even though at that time there was really no scientific study of human mind, human behavior. And others' reactions to, to, to combat situations were seen essentially as signs of uh, defective character. Um, yet from a different standpoint, psychological operations were nothing new and were ongoing. And here you have an example of a leaflet produced by the colonials uh, who were encouraging the enemy troops to desert, okay? 
telling them how much how better off they would be switching side. Um, and of course, the British troops were running their own uh, uh, retaliatory propaganda, depicting the colonials as mobs of, of renegades, essentially. Now let's fast forward to the Civil War time, a time when military medicine was in its infancy. And this is when the concept of nostalgia for soldiers' art were first introduced in uh, as clinical terms to describe combat-related stress. These are the precursors of what we call now post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and at this time, it became clear that there were large numbers of psychological victims of conflict, and also that substance abuse and withdrawal from, substance, from substances like uh, well, from uh, substances like alcohol, morphine, uh, cocaine were significant problems. And this was also the time of the institutionalization of the uh, of mental health care in the United States. Um, asylums were established as part of what was known as the moral treatment of the mentally ill. And uh, the U.S. government hospital for the insane, that was also known as Saint Elizabeth's Hospital and still is known as Saint Elizabeth's Hospital, was founded in 1855. And it started a meeting right away you know, during the war. Uh, many military servicemen. Um, it was functioning also as a general hospital, not just a, as a psychiatric hospital at that point. Those, those were the needs. Uh, it received the visit of President Lincoln in, in 1862. Um, and I, I, I have here a photo of the original building of the hospital that wasn't even complete at the time when the Civil War was uh, happening, uh, and uh, you know, I salute uh, the institution where I serve right now as uh, as director of psychiatry, as was said. Now, this building is now part of the uh, headquarter of Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security, that's taken over uh, in, in in recent times, uh, old side of the hospital, and the current Saint Elizabeth's Hospital. Doesn't look like that, uh, and uh, it is on a different side. All right, so I'm, I'm gonna uh, fast forward again here, and uh, we are at the turn of the century, end of uh, the 19th century, beginning of 20th century. And at this point, the US military has begun to step more decisively into the international stage. Uh, end of, of the century there was the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War, and the intervention in the Boxer Rebellion in China. And so there is a, an awareness uh, of this young nation uh, of, of its emerging greatness, and there is the responsibility that comes from that. And I thought that this was well represented by these words of President Theodore Roosevelt in his inaugural speech in 1905. Um, and so, just a decade later, we have World War One, the Great War. Um, and uh, and this is really, uh, and, and uh, the World War One is really what marks the official beginning of the involvement of the behavioral sciences in uh, US national security. 
the U.S. that enters the war in 1917, and a massive uh, effort to uh, expand the uh, armed forces uh, is needed. And so great change, big changes, massive efforts in that sense. Also, the nature of the war, uh, of, of warfare in, in the Great War, is such that new challenges exist in managing adjustments, stress reactions, but also healthcare logistics, decision-making processes. And psychology at that time is a very young science. You know, psychology separates from philosophy in the second half of the 19th century, becomes a scientific discipline, um, really in the last quarter uh, of the century. And uh, Dr. Robert Yertis was a psychologist at Yale, um, relatively young. He was elected president of the American Psychological Association at that time. And he became a champion for the involvement of psychology in the war effort. And so what psychologists, American psychologists did was they put together the emer their emerging methods to meet the needs of the military in testing for intelligence and attitude. Um, and by the end of the war, over 1.5 million of inductees were actually assessed, uh, with primarily with two tests, the Army Alpha and the Army Beta. The Army Alpha was for the literates, the Army Beta was for the literates or non-English speaking. Also, a, a personality test, the first personality test was developed at that time, but it wasn't even ready in its final form um, uh, it was published, you know, in its final form right after the war. Um, and it was based on case studies and interviews done uh, during the, the war. Also, sanitary court psychologists started conducting studies on morale, training, desertion, uh, and also propaganda. Uh, an important name was the uh, name of Dr. Edwin Boring, who also out of Yale, coordinated the preparation of a report that was published after the war, 1921, summarizing the results of the work done by the psychologists during the, the, the war. And it's important to point out that uh, all this intelligence, uh, attitude, personality testing, this was the precursor of subsequent psychological assessments that um, have been developed uh, in the following decades and are still in use. The idea of testing people in groups was also new and was adopted in the private sector and in academic centers, in university, of course, for different purposes and in different ways, but group testing. Also, World War I marked the beginning uh, of uh, uh, neurosurgery and neurocognitive rehabilitation in response to head trauma. Uh, Dr. Hardik Cushing, uh, who is considered the father of modern neurological surgery, was a surgeon in the army in France uh, in 1917 and 1918. And he operated on over 100 soldiers with brain units. That's really the beginning, the birth of neuro modern neurosurgery. And a leading pioneer in the neurorehabilitation was the head of psychology at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and his name was Dr. Franz, second time I mentioned St. Elizabeth's Hospital, 
Aviation psychology was born, uh, and because it was so important, was recognized it was so important to select and train the right people to become pilots because of the, also because of how expensive the equipment is, right? You need the right people there. The principles of forward mental health and early intervention in combat stress were established during World War I. The principles of proximity, immediacy, and expediency of the intervention. And cognitive restructuring techniques were developed for these interventions um, uh, in uh, situations that were described at that time as shell shock or gas hysteria for the victims of uh, chemical war. Now, this work is important because also because provided some of the foundations for the development of the cognitive theory that came much later in the 1950s by Aaron Beck with the clinical applications, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that uh, is um, a um, well-known therapeutic intervention uh, very much in use these days. So the war ends and we have the inner war period between the, the, the two world wars. Um, and uh, what we see in the inner war period is that certain line of development of, of this uh, work uh, continue. For example, uh, psychological assessment and selection. And this, this, uh, there is also a contribution here that comes from, uh, from Germany, from the German Defense Forces, the Wehrmacht, um, that developed uh, in those years a new approach to assess and select officers. They had assessment centers, and over a period of a few days, uh, candidates were assessed with tests and exercises. Uh, they had multidisciplinary boards uh, in, that included military officers, physicians, and psychologists. Now, the British military observed what the Germans were doing and took a page from them and combined that with a psychometric approach that came from the U.S. And uh, they created a new model called the British War Selection Boards, and that would later be actually adopted in the US by the Office of Strategic Services for this purpose, and as I will say. Um, and in this picture here, uh, there are some of the clinicians that were involved in this work in, um, in the UK, and these were from the uh, reputable Tavistock Clinic in, in London. Now, another interesting line of development here uh, in the interwar period, really starting from the, the war, comes from the, came from the recognition of public opinion as a major force. That was another legacy of the Great War. Uh, so war was not just about the line of fire and the line of supply of the line of fire. It was very much about ideas. And the war of ideas and has to be fought in the hearts and minds of people. And, and this is why, you know, the, the President Woodrow Wilson established a committee on public information to plead the justice of the American cause and fight for the verdict of humanity. George Creel, who was a journalist um, and oversaw the activities of the committee, published a book right after the war. And there were a number of interesting people involved in uh, 
the work of this uh, committee on public information. One of them was Edward Hermes, who was um, originally from Vienna, and he was nephew of Sigmund Freud. Um, and uh, uh, he, he actually organized uh, the publication of Freud's introductory lecture on psychoanalysis when Freud came in the 1910s and gave this introduced psychoanalysis in the US. But um, Bernays uh, has become uh, known as the father of public relations, PR, and uh, a pioneer in advertised, uh, advertising. And basically what he did is uh, apply some of the principles of propaganda to marketing. 1928, that book, Propaganda. Now, the challenges that people, that we have in uh, uh, comprehending our socio-political environment is the topic of public opinion by Walter Lippmann, published in 1922. And Lippmann was building on a literature that went back to the end of the 19th century, um, Gustave Le Bon, uh, The Crowd, study of, of the popular mind. And uh, Lippmann highlights the irrational nature of social perceptions that can influence behavior and hinder social cohesion. And uh, he thought that uh, the problem was not so much the uh, access to information, but really the ability to process information, the fact that human cognition is flawed. And he envisioned uh, a class of experts, um, social behavioral scientists, who would operate beyond uh, voters and politicians and really interpret reality and set the policy-making agenda for all of us. Instead, a critical review of the role of government in molding public opinion came from uh, Harold Glasswell who's uh, one of the founders of American political psychology. And uh, that book on the right, Propaganda Technique in World War I, is, comes from his uh, doctorate dissertation, where he introduced content analysis, a scientific method to analyze communication. And he continued to refine that and uh, would later analyze uh, Nazi propaganda uh, in World War II as chief of the division of wartime communication at the Library of Congress. So that's an important line of development in interwar period. Uh, now, third line of development that I, I selected here is really the, um, the beginning of industrial psychology and the psychology of management. Uh, which originates from another uh, doctorate dissertation uh, from uh, the work of Lillian Gilbreth um, in the 1910s. And Gilbreth was a pioneer in understanding the human factor in management. The fact that employees, workers are not just economic units, they have to be seen as whole persons, right? And therefore, attention has to be given to communication within organizations and human relations. That's where human HR comes from. Um, along this line, in the 1930s, uh, um, an immigrant from a social scientist who immigrated 
from Germany to the U.S. to escape Nazi and Kurt Lewin, developed the concept of action research, research that is aimed at solving problems in ongoing processes. And Lewin, Kurt Lewin focused on group dynamics and he studied social and organizational behavior. And this led to applications in the field of training, organizational change, leadership development, um, group performance, uh, influence, influence on population behavior. And this work has been very important, become a cornerstone for uh, uh, psychologists to do consultative work in the national security organization, but also in the private sector. So we're moving towards World War II here, and, uh, and as uh, Americans' involvement in, the, in World War II became imminent, we find again the name of Dr. Yerkes, who is now in his 60s, and is um, utilizing his influence and understanding of how the, the government works to position psychology to establish an even broader uh, platform for the involvement of psychology in the inner world. And uh, Edwin Boring, also mentioned before, takes a leading role here. And uh, by the end of the war, he, uh, he will have edited two books, these two books, about the, uh, the uh, contributions of American psychologists to the war in a variety of areas, you know, like assessment, selection, training, but also uh, adjustment, improving resilience, morale, uh, leadership, uh, propaganda and psychological warfare. Uh, everything in World War II is on a, on a, on a bigger scale and, uh, and more, even more consequential in terms of the involvement uh, of uh, the uh, behavioral sciences. For example, the field of aviation psychology is expanded and uh, will continue. In after the war in the civilian airline industry. Um, the field of injury rehabilitation also grows and will become and will become a subdiscipline, uh, neuropsychology after the war. Uh, research is conducted and published for the first time on malingering, the exaggeration or or, or, or fake of, of, uh, of illness and self-mutilation for the purpose of uh, escaping uh, contact and service. Also, program instructional methods of teaching uh, are developed for the first time in consultation with psychologists, including uh, Dr. Skinner, who is considered uh, the father of behaviorism. And uh, these, uh, these methods are based on the understanding that learning can be accomplished better in small increments. Uh, when learners get immediate feedback. A whole chapter that's quite interesting is the involvement of behavioral sciences in the work of the Office of Strategic Services. Uh, the OSS is actually considered the birthplace of the field of operational psychology. Operational psychology is psychology in the service of national security and law enforcement. OSS was founded by uh, President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt by executive order. The purpose was to, as you all know, to integrate strategic intelligence 
but also to carry out clandestine and conventional warfare behind enemy lines. And we need people who are capable of doing that. Not everybody can, right? So how do you select them? And the model came from the British War Office selection forms. And uh, Henry Murray, who's a big name in, in, this, in this field, um, and is better known as one of the developers of the thematical perception test, TAT, which is a projected test that's still in use. He, he was the chief psychologist of Monsense, and he, um, he, he edited a, a book on the, uh, on the assessment uh, uh, and selection of, of personnel for the OSS. They had this all-person concept and looked at a number of dimensions. Now, um, William Donovan, the, the founding director of OSS, was a trailblazer. From his uh, creative mind also came the idea to have a psychological profile of Adolf Hitler. And uh, it was compiled, the task was given to a team led by Harvard psychologist, psychoanalyst, William Langer. And the interesting thing is that they predicted that it would die by suicide um, if, 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 if it was losing the war. Now, Eric Erikson is another psychoanalyst, another immigrant from Germany uh, who escaped the Nazi in the 1930s. Um, and he pulled together his psychoanalytic uh, background and his interest in anthropology to offer to the OSS uh, a, a Enlightened view of uh, Hitler's appeal on the Germans, particularly the, the young Germans. Um, and he would later publish this analysis in uh, what is considered his masterpiece, Childhood and Society, in which he includes also his, the model of the eight ages of man, the eight stages of psychological development. And this work by Langer and, uh, and Erickson uh, really it marks the beginning of the field of indirect assessment of foreign leaders, which is uh, ongoing. And we'll talk a little more about that. Well, you know, social psychological research, as I, as I said, was already happening um, before World War II, but it was greatly expanded during the war. Um, Studies were uh, conducted on propaganda and persuasion, uh, morale, leadership, uh, cooperation and conflict, uh, negotiation, compliance. Um, and uh, from the line of work of, of Kurt Lewin, whom I mentioned, you know, Carl Oblen, uh, also out of Yale, joined the research branch of the Information and Education Division of the War Department. He studied persuasion and mass communication. And is, is the author of one of the four volumes uh, of, of, um, on, on social psychology in World War II that were published after the war. Now, this is not this was not just an academic, you know, uh, you know, these uh, understandings, these uh, social psychological understandings, were applied to propaganda and psychological work during and after the war. Um, Another unique contribution of a psychologist came from uh, Dr. Gustav Gilbert, who was fluent in Germany, and that's also probably why he was sent to 
uh, act as a, a prison psychologist during the Nuremberg trials. Um, and he um, tested psychologically uh, with the Rorschach Inkblot test the defendants, the 22 defendants. And after the war, he uh, summarized his experience in a book in which he uh, reflected on the psychology of the dictatorship. American anthropologists also were using their professional knowledge to inform military and intelligence wars during World War II. Um, for example, in the Asia Pacific uh, theater of operation, helping design the, and implement the OSS campaigns, also studying Japanese social structure to uh, prepare for post-war maintenance of order, and also helping to create foreign language programs. And uh, all of the above, you know, started to uh, create some ethical controversies, which I will talk more about, um, and that continue. Uh, and then speaking of, um, you know, ethical concern, I think I thought I, I would also mention the work of Marvin Opler, Dr. Marvin Opler and others, uh, on, on uh, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And the work done by, by the War Relocation Authority that is, you know, summarized in the book Impounded People, uh, published after the war. And uh, this was a critical uh, work by Marvin Opler uh, about this uh, chapter of this. Now, um, so far, you know, what we, we've seen that there are multiple lines of development uh, in regard of the involvement of the, uh, of the behavioral sciences in national security. It's not linear, you know, there are ups and flows. A lot gets done during the Great War, then there is development in the different direction, then there is another explosion, you know, so to speak, of, of uh, activity during World War II. Um, and there is all these knowledge bases that uh, these people can use. Um, now, after World War II, no time to rest in the commission because immediately the, the Cold War starts. And it's, a, it's a perceived as, I mean, the, the, the track of the Soviet Union is perceived as existential, uh, is ideological, and, uh, and the US responds with the strategy of containment and the Truman Doctrine. Uh, I, I thought this, this words of President Truman could be um, you know, used to uh, signify that. Um, so basically, this nation that was young in a, in a war in a, at the time of Theodore Roosevelt and that was realizing its uh, uh, emerging greatness and responsibility now has uh, decided to be the champion of the free world. So uh, you see the evolution and, uh, um, and uh, the importance of that. Um, and uh, 1947 is a very important year in the history of national security, because it's the year of the National Security Act. So major restructure and national security apparatus. National Security Council was established uh, CIA was uh, born, and uh, the 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 war fight eventually eventually the war fighting services were merged into the 
Department of Defense. Right? So at this time, the national security world looks with a lot of interest uh, at um, uh, the behavioral sciences because there is a keen interest in understanding influence on human behavior. And one of the first, uh, I want to point out that one of the first uh, memoranda out of the National Security Council, number four, was devoted to psychological operations. And, uh, and in 1951, President Truman established a psychological strategy board to streamline American psychological operations. So the expectation was that the behavioral sciences were reaching a mature stage in their evolution, and they would be uh, they would have predictive predictive capacity, which are predicting human behavior, and they were expected therefore to contribute to post-war reconstruction and to avert uh, another global military conflict. But the uh, you know, and then we have the, the Korean War. And the Korean War has an abrupt uh, onset that really doesn't allow time to apply the principles, to apply well the principles of forward mental health intervention. Many uh, psychological casualties uh, during this war, and arguably uh, one of the important issues emerging from the Korean War, at least for behavioral scientists to reckon with, was the effect of torture and brainwashing. Brainwashing was a new term coined at that time by a journalist to capture the impact of the intense ideological re-education that American prisoners of war were subjected to by the Chinese captors in conditions of great deprivation. Um, Seer, special, special evasion, resistance, and escape training was the brainchild of the suffering of these uh, prisoners of war in Korea. It was developed by a working group established by President Eisenhower. And the goal here was to train service members to cope with the stress of captivity. Psychologists have been uh, very involved in running these programs ever since. And speaking of brainwashing, another very interesting thing that happens around this time is uh, a show, the show trial of a um, Hungarian cardinal named, uh, I will try to pronounce, Josef Minzesti. Uh, he had been a staunch opponent of fascism and then became a staunch opponent of, of communism and was put to trial um, for treason and he confessed things that, that he obviously had not done. The way he looked, the way he spoke, the things that he said suggested strongly that he, his, he had been brainwashed, so to speak, and, and that the Soviet Union had found a way to, to maybe use chemicals to control people's mind and force confessions. So as a result of that, CIA was tasked with finding a line of defense and uh, ended up setting up its own program. Of uh, that that went through iterations and uh, eventually was known as MK Ultra. The purpose was to precisely attain human behavior control through various means, particularly psychoactive substances. 
particularly LSD. And, you know, actually these efforts were not productive, turned out to be counterproductive and to generate backlash that does to this day. But one, in, instead, one other uh, more, much more sensible line of effort developed by the CIA was the, the continuation, essentially, of the uh, psychopolitical profiling started by the OSS with the, the biography of Torpedo. And I want to mention here Gerald Post, who's been a, who's recently um, passed away, has been a kind mentor to many, including myself. And he, for 20 years, led the CIA Center for the Analysis of Personality and Behavior. And uh, perhaps the highest point in his career was the contribution that his team gave to the preparation of the profiles of Prime Minister uh, Begin of Israel and uh, President Sadat uh, of Egypt um, for the negotiators that were uh, the broker the Camp David uh, peace accords. And for all his work, Dr. Post was awarded the Intelligence Medal of Honor. Then he retired from the CIA and became a prolific author, many books, and, uh, and, and an influential scholar. Now, behavioral health contributions uh, in, uh, during the Cold War also focused on the domestic front. Uh, when racial and social inequities within the U.S. came front and center. And I want to mention here Gordon Alcord's book on the nature of prejudice. He offered a compilation of research on individual and group prejudice. While the nation, uh, when the nation embarked in a process of soul searching and change with the civil rights movement. And if one looks at the Constitution, the Constitution says, in order to form a more perfect union and confirm the self evident truth that all people are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights. And so this is also domestic tranquility and national security because if one doesn't do what, what they say, you know, people take notice. Uh, meanwhile, overseas psychologists and anthropologists remained involved in counterinsurgency work. An example of that was a, a, a project, um, large-scale project called Camelot that studied influence factors in social systems experiencing internal conflict and destabilizing influences. This work was not without controversy. Its purpose and ethical tenets uh, were questioned. Some examples of questions is the intentional and covert shaping of public opinion inherently repressive. Should behavioral sciences benefit U.S. national security or mankind in general? And is, the ethical, is, is it ethical to advance science while pursuing national interest? So, uh, three tough questions. Now, out of the Cold War and the domino theory came the Vietnam War, another uh, important war and a time of division within the nation which ended up amplifying the efficacy of the propaganda of the North Vietnamese and 
likely contributed to high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans who came back to a nation uh, where, you know, some people, a lot of people didn't like what they had been involved in. Um, the prevalence of character pathology and substance abuse was very high during the Vietnam War, and uh, there were organizational decisions that may have also contributed to the problems, um, including rotating individuals as opposed to uh, entire units on a front line. The aerial scientists uh, were effective in providing uh, sociocultural intelligence as part of the uh, CORDS program, Civil Operations and Rural Development, which integrated uh, military and development activities under one chain of command. However, there, there was also a problem there that, the, uh, at least from standpoint of, 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 of ethics, ethics, you know, that, that, that the, 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 pro, the CORDS program was linked to the Phoenix program, uh, which aimed at the neutralization of the electrons and their collaborators. Now, so far I have uh, referred to uh, the contributions of behavioral sciences in national security to military intelligence. But the State Department during the Cold War, the diplomats also utilized selected psychiatrists in political advisory uh, roles. And this roughly coincided with the, the era of the, the town, the easing of tensions uh, with the Soviet Union. <clears throat> I want to mention here the work of two psychiatrists um, with the State Department, Dr. William Davidson. Um, and he also had a background in uh, anthropology, and he served as a um, uh, served with the Arts Control and Disarmament Agency within the State Department. He was very active in the uh, psychiatric community. He chaired a committee on psychiatry and foreign affairs at the American Psychiatric Association. And there he focused on uh, fostering dialogue between uh, Israeli and Palestinians. For the same purpose, uh, he founded uh, the Institute of Psychiatry and Foreign Affairs. And basically, Dr. Davidson had this vision of uh, a role for psychiatry in, in what we call Track 2 diplomacy, uh, the unofficial contacts between uh, citizens and groups uh, that uh, try to facilitate understanding and goodwill among countries. Another psychiatrist mentioned here um, uh, associated with the State Department, where he served in the medical unit, Dr. Steve Pichenik. He <coughs> focused, he, he became a high-level advisor on matters of crisis management, particularly hostage situations, which were an emerging problem as uh, the problem of the threat of terrorism emerged in those years. And for this reason, he was consulted by the Italian government uh, when uh, uh, the former Prime Minister Aldo Moro was kidnapped, eventually killed by the refugees. <coughs> So, moving fast here, but you know, end of the Cold War, um, and you know, say that long gone are those days, uh, but uh, there was a time in 1990s, early 1990s, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, 
when some thought that uh, the ideological evolution of mankind had reached its peak and its end, um, and that uh, uh, we're beginning a, a peaceful post-historical phase uh, where the, the, the Western liberal democratic paradigm had priority. Um, well, history went on. And, uh, the nation deployed its military in a number of other uh, circumstances. And uh, I would say about this that in the past decades, reflecting the evolving standards of time of the time, there's been an increased attention to the care uh, for the care of, of the people in uh, on active duty and the veterans exposed to combat-related stressor. Not without controversy, as in the case of the Gulf War syndrome, uh, treatment of traumatic brain injuries, and the recognition uh, of suicide uh, as an emergency. Now, of course, more than national defense and intelligence and diplomacy is needed uh, for the security and welfare of, of the nation. Many other threats exist to the domestic tranquility. And this will be a whole other conversation, but uh, suffice to say that in the past, uh, in, in, the, in the second half of the 20th century, uh, behavioral scientists have played number of roles uh, and become an integral part of uh, law enforcement and public safety in this country at, at various levels, developing a variety of fields like threat assessment, criminal profiling, um, consultation to interrogation, the employed assistance programs, and, and many others. Behavioral scientists staff the National Threat Assessment Center of the Secret Service and the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime of the FBI, where the, uh, the behavioral analysis units are. With the war on terror, what we have is, uh, in a way, uh, to an extent, the blending of national defense and law enforcement. And a lot has been written and done by behavioral scientists in this past 20 years to understand the psychological roots of political violence. Um, to uh, help assess and management and manage the threat of radicalization um, and apply social cultural understandings in order to win hearts and minds. Um, I mentioned a few uh, psychiatrists here. Dr. Mark Sageman is a forensic psychiatrist. He actually got his PhD uh, before becoming an MD and served as a CIA case officer in Pakistan in the 1980s. He studied global jihad and argued that radicalization should be seen as an individual process driven by personal relations of kinship and friendship. Domestic terrorism in the US has also been on the radar of behavioral scientists. Uh, the Department of Justice put together a panel to review the Ameritrax uh, case. That was the the 2001 anthrax attacks. And Dr. Greg Satov and Dr. Ronald Schaub, the psychiatrist, were on this panel, called for the report. This is an extraordinary case of insider threat, a lone actor, and it became a psychological autopsy because the individual who would, would have been accused um, committed suicide. And Dr. Schauten, 
is a director of the Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship at St. Elizabeth Hospital. So, third time, few years, St. Elizabeth Hospital here. Also, I want to mention uh, Dr. Reed Meloy, a forensic psychologist who uh, recently developed uh, Preparitin. Preparitin is a structured professional judgment tool uh, geared towards assessing and managing uh, the threat posed by individuals who may engage in long actor terrorism and is utilized by counter-terrorist professionals. Now, uh, priorities have uh, shifted in the 2010s. The, the Department of Defense uh, has a, 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 up with a 4 plus 1 threat matrix. Plus 1 is terrorism, and the 4 are uh, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. So great, great power competition has been back front and center in the international security landscape. And recently, Secretary of Defense Austin has outlined a vision of integrated, multi-domain deterrence. We have here the war in Ukraine, uh, demonstrating that the rise in hybrid wars does not mean that brutal, old-fashioned, conventional warfare is gone. And it also shows that the nuclear threat is, is Autocracies are challenging um, effectively democracies on a global scale, and the reality of the battlefield is physical, digital, and augmented. It's a battle for attention that goes on 24-7, is amplified by echo chambers created by social media platforms that are um, by design addictive. Cognitive neuroscience and related technologies that aim at uh, cognitive and behavioral modifications are uh, allow dual use, uh, like other biological sciences, can be weaponized, can have various applications. And uh, some have proposed that experts in geopolitics should also be experts in understanding emotions like hope, fear, uh, resentment, humiliation and that we should all try to practice strategic empathy in a world that is more and more multipolar. The mind has been described as the sixth domain of operation, in addition to land, sea, air, and space, and cyber. And, uh, and the uh, US Special Operations Command, uh, General, General Clark, has recently said that uh, is prioritizing the use of uh, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning driven sentiment analysis, which is the process of computationally identifying attitudes and opinions and craft messaging accordingly. And we shouldn't definitely not just focus on war and geopolitics. You know, we have a pandemic here, we have natural disasters all the time, we have the lack of domestic cohesion as a threat to domestic. So against all this backdrop, it is important to appreciate the importance of, of the human factor and the behavioral, the role of the behavioral sciences. For example, when it comes to all matters related to intelligence throughout the cycle of intelligence and counterintelligence. And I want to mention here the work of David Charney. Dr. Charney is an IWP alumnus who has presented here a number of times and has uh, published on the psychology of the insider spy, and also the doctor of Ken, uh, the, the work of Ken Decleva. Doctor Decleva was my boss at the State Department. He, he was chief of psychiatry there. Now he's in academia, 
and uh, at the Bush Foundation, I think, thank Warren. And uh, uh, he has uh, further developed the field of psychopolitical autonomy. Now, I have uh, alluded to ethical issues, and I will say a few words about that, because I think it's important. There are some facts here, the, the Hippocratic do-no-harm imperative, uh, the prohibition against the direct uh, uh, or indirect participation in acts of torture by the American Psychological Association, the criticism of the Human Terrain Systems Project by the American Anthropological Association, the prohibition for psychiatrists to diagnose public figures, that's called the Goldwater Rule, it's known as the Goldwater Rule from uh, Senator Barry Goldwater's name. Um, operational psychologists have to do this work day to day in national security and law enforcement have thought uh, about this hard and have come up with the, the standards for ethical practice. Um, and you know, I, I put here the rogue warrior, uh, Mr. Massinko, who uh, founded um, uh, SEAL Team 6. Um, he recently passed away and uh, I'm thinking maybe he has a different view on this uh, um, and, and wonders why why all this fuss anyway. If he knows one thing or two about war, may have a different viewpoint, and that's that's also valuable. Um, so what here, uh, where do we go from here? I'd say for a minute, go back to the past, um, uh, to the foundations. According to the Delphi Oracle, we should know ourselves and nothing should be too much. Uh, Aristotle uh, taught us that virtue consists in finding an appropriate middle ground between extremes. But Machiavelli in the Prince uh, told us that prophets without arms have not gone far in history. And there may be few exceptions, but generally it's, it's a rule that applies. Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud had a, a, a public correspondence in the early 1930s. Einstein was an outspoken pacifist. And he asked Freud, why war, by whom create? And Freud said that, responded that conflicts of men are settled by the use of violence, and that there is not much use in trying to get rid of these uh, violent instincts, but they can be diverted. So, just concluding here and saying that this kind of scratches the surface, but there is a pitch, you know, you could do more and develop uh, even a course on behavioral sciences in national security. And, and these are some areas that we could work on. I just want to thank you so much for inviting me and for uh, your attention today. There are many questions. There are many questions. Particularly interested in the medical concologies past facts, not just that we as Americans uh, look at that, but like say that Hezbollah or ISIS or any of the terrorist groups or extremist groups around the world, um, they seem to operate with, you know, impunity and they don't really care about the ethics of that. And I'm wondering
plan, and then uh, let's do harm, you know, on the other side. And um, in particularly uh, with the Russians, I mean, did you see any, um, you know, kind of attitude of any of these militaries using medical intelligence and medical warfare on purpose to harm and hurt? Well, that's that's obviously not their view. You know, they they don't they don't share the Hippocratic oath of, of, of do no harm. They they do harm uh, for the purpose of uh, for political purposes and uh, strategic purposes. And uh, so there is there is definitely no Hippocratic oath in what uh, yeah. you know these organizations or. Uh, and so, I guess your point is how 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 do we how do we respond to that if we do no harm? Well, we let the people who don't have the Hippocratic oath deal with that. The Geneva Conventions, but eliminate the I don't know if I have an answer to that, <laughs> honestly. But uh, it, it, it is very true. The, the reality of the uh, international arena is, uh, is, is harsh. And, uh, and so these ethical issues, uh, uh, but still, these ethical issues are important for us because that's how we. Measure ourselves. And professionally, these are things that matter. Okay. I'm vaguely aware in the um, uh, civilian world of um, psychology and so on that there's a big debate between classical techniques that are kind of related to philosophy and things like um, uh, talking care. Versus um, pharmacology, and that there's um, increasing um, attempts by people in the psychological world, or maybe I should call the psychiatry world, to think of um, psychological issues as really being like uh, the biology of the brain and the pathology of the, um, the physiology. Uh, I just noticed that you haven't said anything about pharmacology in the context of behavioral sciences and um, national security. And um, you know, I think it's like a whole world for yeah. how do you get uh, the warfighter to perform better, challenging conditions, pharmacologically, stuff like that. 
Yeah. Well, pharmacology really enters this uh, world of national security in the Vietnam War. And psychopharmacology really starts in the 1950s, modern psychopharmacology. I wasn't ready for the, the, the Korean War. Um, I did say a few things, I think, about uh, you know, cognitive, uh, that's what I was alluding to, cognitive uh, neuroscience and uh, the related technologies. Um, and, uh, and yes, you know, there is a uh, there is research ongoing, and there are applications uh, for uh, for various, including uh, psychopharmacological interventions for improving uh, behavior and cognition in the context of national. So that's a dual use, right? But you know, for example, the amphetamines were introduced many decades ago. Violence, you know, stay, uh, pay, pay, sustain attention for prolonged periods of time, right? They are now used for treating, uh, for treating attention deficit hyperactivity disorder right now. So I, I didn't mention that, but that's, that's very true. That's another area. Enrico, um, th this was a tremendous tour d'horizon of all of these issues, and I thank you so much for it. I wanted to ask you a little bit about any knowledge you have about the intersection of psychology and, let's say, moral strength and character and, and courage and things like this. What did it take? One of the great psychological challenges that we faced in the Cold War was to try to get atomized people in the Soviet Empire to feel connected once again, uh, because they had been separated from one another by an atmosphere of fear and mistrust. Uh, so, one had to make them feel as though they weren't alone. One had to help them uh, somehow overcome the fear and petrification that came from this, overcome the sense of hopelessness, despair, and futile resignation of living under this type of a political order. And, um, but then there is a moral aspect to this. When Pope John Paul II came to Poland, he basically appealed to people not to be afraid, but on a spiritual level. And, to, and, and, and so I'm, you know, ultimately this combination of moral strength and you know, and, and, and a psychological transformation took place that gave people the courage to take to the streets, not only in Poland, but in the Baltic states and eventually in various of the Soviet Union republics and in Moscow itself. And I'm wondering what your reflections are about this and, and what kind of literature 
you may be aware of because you have an incredible array of literature that you've cited here uh, that, that might address this nexus. Well, I, I think that this uh, goes to the, the work that, uh, that was done, a lot of work that was done in those years on uh, influence. You know, how to uh, influence uh, behavior. And uh, I'm sure that, I don't know the specifics, but I'm, sh I'm sure that, that, that some of that work uh, also helped uh, reach out to these people who were living under, you know, in the Soviet Union and in the Soviet bloc, and, uh, and, and support them, inform them, and uh, help develop their, uh, you know, their, uh, their opinions, and uh, and then uh, and, and rise against this. Um, but I think that this your question speaks to uh, that uh, huge amount of work that was done on on, on uh, in support of uh, of influence, yeah. influence operations. There was a widespread use of applied social science research in the Vietnam War, especially with the Viet Cong Operation or Mao Project, um, which obviously was unsuccessful in enabling effective counterinsurgency. From your perspective, to what extent did the um, Iraq War era human terrain program repeat, learn from, or ignore the sort of difficult experience we had with the Viet Cong motivation and morale project in the Vietnam War? Was there learning? Were there the same mistakes made that it go in different directions? I think that the jury is still out there. Uh, I think that there were, you know, I don't, I, I don't know really the specifics, but I, I think that there were problems in the implement. There were a lot of good ideas, a lot of uh, lessons to learn from, but then the implementation wasn't as good as uh, as uh, one would uh, one would want. Nonetheless, there was a lot of good work done there. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I think the idea was very, very good. The spirit was very good. And then there is the, you know, of course, there are people who uh, disagree fundamentally with, with that kind of work and the applications of anthropology uh, and social sciences to social cultural intelligence and so forth. Because then, you know, they 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 point in the direction of use of that intelligence for purposes that are. You know, but I, I do think that that's what they were looking at. The, the lessons learned from the court's experiences and what you are referring to. You gave us a complete history of psychological approaches uh, through U.S. history. I wonder what you think was the main victory through all these that you told us about. The main victory. Uh, I don't know if it's a, it's a victory, but I, I, I really uh, I really like the work that uh, I mean I think it is a victory, you know, uh, but I don't know if it's the biggest victory. But I, I really like the work that Gerald Post and his and his, and his team did for the in preparation of the uh, of the campaign uh, negotiation, and and really the, the intuition was that. Uh, these two, based on their psychopolitical profiles, that these two leaders should not be uh, dealing with each other directly. There should be somebody, you know, really doing the, the, the 
shuttle uh, diplomacy within the same building, but not uh, within the same compound, but not in the same room, because they were not made to understand each other and like each other. Uh, I think that's a fundamental contribution there. And then there's more, uh, but you know, the, the, that was that was an important event for me. And I also like the idea of Dr. Davidson of practical diplomacy and a place for for the behavioral sciences in that. You should be aware that uh, Dr. Steve Kachinik is an IWP alumnus as well. Yeah, he's a psychiatrist and, and State Department. You were telling us about him a little bit in the hostage situations. So he came and studied here. I didn't know that. Uh, that's very interesting. I, I I actually have met David Charming. Yes. Was, uh, I, I, did, uh, I didn't know about Dr. Chen. Very interesting fellow. Yes. I read about him. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much.